Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we confront the insidious myths in our history and swiftly sign the death warrant of falsehood. I am your regular host, Paul Baffle, and I am here with my loyal co-host and Walsingham's man on the inside, Kyle Glover. Hello. Yes, on the inside of a giant pie, just like in the history yeah. picture, Bill. Indeed, and if you haven't seen it, go and see it. It is, it is absolute primary source Tudor history right there. It's the sort Definitely. of Tudor history that you want. Definitely. On that note... On that note, this week, dear listeners, we are bouncing back to the bitter times of Elizabeth I and the poisonous courts of Tudor Britain. And joining us on this quest to decode the myths and discredit the plots, we are joined by author, historian and teaching associate at Strathclyde University, Stephen Verappen. Stephen, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for squeezing in so many Marion Tudor Stuart references there uh, is it Walsingham oh indeed indeed it's our favorite Tudor <laughs> with good reason with good reason indeed I've picked a nice old man so you came to us by recommendation twice in fact uh, one's from Jesse Childs who came on to cover Elizabeth I and today we're going to cover the other powerful queen of the time and also from Linda Porter who came on to cover Catherine of Braganzia uh, but prior to that, our paths hadn't crossed at all. So before we dive into that, can you tell us a bit about your background, your work, and how you landed in this particular Tudor Viper pit? <laughs> uh, that's a very good question, actually. And I wish I had a more interesting answer than it does. I came straight from school when I was 17 to university, studied English, not history, but I always liked sort of Tudor era literature, Shakespeare, mm. all of that sort of stuff. So I studied that. And in my fourth year, my dissertation was on cultural representations of Henry VIII's wives. So I was looking at Renaissance plays that featured the wives of Henry VIII. But yeah. at the end of that, I thought, what do you, what do, you do with your life when that is your <laughs> degree? <laughs> when there are already that many books and documentaries exactly. about the wives of Henry VIII. Exactly. I thought, I mean, that, yeah, that's going to get me a job. Um, what am I going to do with that? So I thought, I know I'll do another year at university and just do a master's and figure out in a year's time what I want to do with my life. And in a year's time, I still enjoyed studying it and still had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. So I thought I'll stay again and do a PhD. That'll kill a few years. <laughs> and at the end of that, I realised, well, I've come this far, I might as well just stay in academia and hope somewhere along the line that someone will employ me permanently. Okay, so your entire career has been built on the fact that you've got no idea what sort of career you're going to have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's working out. Don't spoil it. No, no, you seem to have got a good gig going there. Okay, and you've written you, you've written a number of books of a number. Of, I mean, they all have a sort of Tudor flavour to them, mm. but you, you've written a number of books about a number of fields in a number of particular kind of areas. Yeah. Um, I've stayed in the Tudors and early Stuarts. I've just finished a book on King James, it's James the Sixth of Scotland, and First mm. of England. Elizabeth's successor. So I've gone as far as 1625. Beyond that, I think I'd get lost and I'd get a little bit frightened because it's really complex. Civil wars and fights with Parliament and all of that mm. sort of stuff. So I, I like to stay 
within my lane, which is Tudors and early Stuarts. Yeah, I know anybody who could say, right, you know, I'm sticking with Tudors because it's my nice, simple, safe comfort zone. (laughs) (laughs) In comparison to some things, yes, it is. Okay, so we you've come onto history range to uh, to kick off a few things. So let's let's dive into that then. So we'll we'll start off with our traditional rage question to all of our historians out there. So Stephen, with all the passion that you feel it warrants, what do you wish everyone would just stop believing? Well, the word passion was well chosen there because it's a particular phrase that relates to passion. And I'm sure you've heard this. If you have looked at the Tudors at all, if you've looked at Mary Queen of Scots at all, you will have heard the phrase, Mary Queen of Scots ruled from the heart, Elizabeth ruled from the head. And Mm -hmm. I would quite happily never hear that bloody phrase again in my life. It reduces complex things down and it's just such a cheesy stereotype and it's based on movies, I think. It's based on, I think, really what the Victorians wrote about Mary Queen of Scots, how mm. they perceived her as this romantic heroine. And that's, I think, where it comes from, this Victorian romanticisation. And I think, I mean, Victorians, they believed a lot of things. I mean, they sent kids up chimneys. They died of minor <laughs> infections. These are not things that we should still be doing. So I'd love to never hear that phrase again for people to stop using it. I do like how you highlight Victorians there as well, because they have a really, really interesting view on history, which seems to grab some evidence, reach a conclusion and just stick to that. Uh, I remember reading one that Victorians felt that uh, medieval people didn't eat vegetables because they were looking at household account books and <laughs> saw that vegetables were never bought in, so therefore they couldn't they possibly have been eaten. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I've come to discover? See if you have any sort of misbelief, or you come across any misbelief about history or some misrepresentation of history, blame the Victorians and you will really have a strong chance of being right. If you just say, oh no, the Victorians started that myth, you will be right. <laughs> yeah, even if it's about the Victorians. Yeah, that's 90% of history history evers, I would reckon. Definitely. The Victorians made it up and it stuck. That's <laughs> yeah. everything in history. <laughs> okay, right then, Carl. So let's, uh, let's dig into this in a bit more detail then. So, Carl, do you want to kick us off with question one? Yeah, so, so that's how Mary Queen of Scots is thought of by the Victorians, by more modern readers, modern audiences. Um, who was she as an actual woman, though? Um, what is her background and Mary Queen of Scots' story, her history? <laughs> a nice simple question. What is Mary Queen of Scots' story? Oh, oh yeah. Complex, just, to, just to get in. Interesting life. <laughs> um, well, she was born in 1542. We might as well start when she was born. She was a daughter of James V. She became queen when she was just six days old because her father... Bet the Victorians made this up, turned his face to the wall and died. So he died when she was a baby. Mm. The problem was, as it so often was in the Tudor period, Henry VIII, Henry VIII saw the birth of a daughter, a Queen of Scots, as a chance for him to join Scotland with England by marrying this baby girl to his son Edward, his only surviving Mm. legitimate son. Scotland at first was fairly amenable to this idea and then changed its mind. Henry was not happy about this, so he began 
a war with Scotland. He was trying to essentially kidnap Mary, bring her down to England, raise her as uh, Edward's future wife. Mary, when she was five, to avoid this, was sent to France, which is one of the things people often associate with her. She was sent Mm. to France to marry instead the Dauphin of France, which she did. She stayed in France until she was 18. She stayed in France until 1561. Unfortunately, the Dauphin that she married, although he did become king, he was sickly, he was puny, underdeveloped, and he didn't last long. So her tenure as Queen Consort of France didn't last particularly long. She ended up having to come back to Scotland when she was 18. It seems her father has an idea that she should marry the sickly king of something. (laughs) Well, I suppose he did know that uh, Francois was going to be sickly. (laughs) And also, I mean, it could have worked out well if he hadn't died. If he hadn't Mm. died, she might have been able to be Queen of France and exert a bit of control over a weak-minded husband. Never know. But she went back to Scotland and began what is usually known in history as the personal rule. So she ruled Scotland fairly well as its Queen Regnant. The only problem was, and of course in the 16th century it was quite a big problem, was that Scotland had turned Protestant whilst Mm. she was in France. Not just Protestant as well, but kind of extreme Protestant. Scotland goes all in when it it goes for something. (laughs) (laughs) So when she returned to Scotland she couldn't just say, right, you're all Catholic again. She instead had to find a kind of religious balance and it worked out so that she maintained her private Catholic faith, but she let Scotland continue in its hard Calvinism. No one was really happy about this. She married uh, a couple of times again, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. She Mm -hmm. married Darnley, first of all, had her son, James, became King James VI of Scotland, first of England. But the marriage wasn't particularly happy. Darnley wasn't a particularly um, likeable or tolerant young man. He was murdered. He was assassinated. Again, there's a lot of murkiness against who was really behind it. Mm-hmm. And Mary swiftly remarried to the man that was almost certainly his murderer. After I should as you would. I mean yeah, who, who, who better, wouldn't who wouldn't? Yeah. Who better to marry? That was really the beginning of the end of her reign. Although I would suggest that when she had the little baby James baptized as a Catholic, that pretty much got the knives out for her. Because she mm. was basically saying, Yeah, I know I've I've kept my Catholic faith to myself all these years, but I intend that my son should be a Catholic prince when he grows up. So you're all going to be forced back at some point to Catholicism. So when she married Bothwell, who was the murderer of Darnley, that gave people that really wanted rid of her a good excuse. They could say, oh, well, clearly they've been having an affair the whole time. Clearly she knew all about the murder. Let's get rid of them both. So Hmm. Mary was in prison. She was forced to abdicate. She escaped imprisonment. She lost a battle. And then she fled to England, where her cousin Elizabeth I was queen, and she hoped to get support. She really led to believe, I think, that Elizabeth would support her because they were fellow monarchs. 
Elizabeth didn't like the idea of subjects rebelling against a monarch any more than Mary did. So Mary yeah. expected that she would get some armed support, be back in Scotland for within a few weeks, really, with an army at her back and get her thrown back. Instead, she was in prison for the rest of her life and then got her head cut off. Right. So that was a rush through those finals, which is actually something I hate. I shouldn't have done that because I hate in all the movies about Mary, Queen of Scots, they cover the personal rule and then they show her flee to England and then boom, it's, 19, it's 1587 and uh, she's getting her head cut off. There was a lot that happened in those years, a lot of interesting stuff, but mm. uh, I won't bore you with it. No, 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 no please, I'm, do, I, please do. Dive in on that. Let's, I'm, let's I'm, take I'm that f- off I'm the overlooked full bit. on primary school assembly hall, cross-legged, sat. Go, tell me about this story. This is my favourite story. Please go. The captivity years of Mary Queen of Scots. What really was interesting is that when she was first imprisoned, she was put through a show trial almost, an inquiry hmm. into whether or not she had played a role in Darnley's death. That was Elizabeth's excuse. I can't let you go back to Scotland. I can't let you go to France. I can't do anything with you. I can't even meet you until this dark cloud over your name has been cleared up. So I'm going to put you through a show inquiry. Mary was really reluctant because she had fled there in expectation of support. And what she found was that this foreign sovereign was essentially trying her for something. So she, she at first didn't want to be part of it. Eventually hmm. she accepted. Elizabeth insisted that Mary, at the outcome of this little inquiry, snowballed into a bigger inquiry at Westminster, Elizabeth insisted, right, the verdict is you're not guilty or innocent. So I'm not going to do anything with you. I'm oh, not going to meet you. I'll let you go. You're just going to be kept here. <laughs> uh, but this wasn't the end of her story still because she was still very prominently Catholic. A lot of people, I think rightly, thought, that well, this is kind of an injustice. So she was attracting a lot of Catholic support. She was attracting a lot Mm. of support for people that were opposed to Elizabeth because here was a younger queen that if she could be restored, if she could be brought back into some sort of favour, she would be an alternative to Elizabeth because she had a claim to the English throne. Yeah. And I suppose, yeah, if you've got, you know, if you've got this Catholic woman that turns up and goes, like, please give me sanctuary, that is suddenly arrested. Yeah. And let's be fair, detained without actual evidence yes. of guilt or well, anything like that. There was some very dodgy evidence, the casket letters. Now, this is something else that I almost just refuse to talk about because it's been, on the one hand, done to death. And on the other hand, they don't exist anymore. The casket letters were these letters that were supposedly found in Scotland in amongst the Earl of Bothwell's stuff after he and Mary had fled. And what they were supposed to show were secret love letters between the two of them, uh, really sleazy stuff that showed they'd been having an affair all along and so they were both murderers. But the letters are gone. The originals are lost. Mm. So what we are left with is English copies of French copies, translations, all of this sort of stuff. And I just think so many historians for centuries now have poured over these copies of translations trying to find things. How valid can the conclusions be when you don't have the originals to look at? Yeah, and you don't necessarily have anything to say that to, to show or prove that that's a 
direct copy, a word for word, uh, that it hasn't been mistranslated. Exactly, exactly. So uh, they annoy me talking about them anyways because they're complicated. I actually loved Alison Weir's book that looked at every single letter in detail. I loved it, but I never went to see them again. I never went to read them again. <laughs> Sick of the sight of them. Just to jump in, they had the actual casket from the casket letters on display in the National Museum of Scotland when I was there the other month. Very, uh, very pretty. It's a beautiful thing. So, Silver box. Yeah, yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Um, that's if it is the original. If it is, yeah. If it is the Question mark over that. Yeah. But but yes, just to throw that in. Hmm. How do we then go from kind of this life imprisonment to the execution, and it's it, the indecisiveness that seems to follow this trend? Yeah. Well. Because there were a lot of people who were really interested in releasing Mary, freeing Mary, with vested interests of their own, obviously, she attracted quite a lot of plotters. So there were a lot of plotters who essentially were saying, yeah, we'll get you out and we will do this and we will do that. What they wanted was her as a figurehead to plot against Elizabeth. Now, if I were Mary, I would be quite happy for these people to be doing this on my behalf if it might result in my freedom. If I found myself imprisoned for something that I, well, let's just say, I don't think she did. I don't think she had any part in Darnley's death. Um, I, I don't think she was sad about it, but I don't think she was stupid enough to plot such a ridiculous murder. I mean, if if she was going to do it, she'd have poisoned them or had someone stick a knife in his gut. She don't blow up the house and draw attention <laughs> to the murder if you're trying to off someone. So she went along with eventually a murder plot that, uh, this was a, a murder plot against Elizabeth mm. uh, by some Catholic plotters the English government knew about, Walsingham knew about it, and there's some debate again about whether it was a set-up, a kind of trap. And once it was officially discovered, the English government could say, look, she's a plotter, she's always been a plotter, let's cut her head off. And they do. And they do, and she was kicking and screaming about that as well, rightfully. At her trial, she made the very technically correct argument that I'm not a subject of England, how can I commit treason against Queen Elizabeth when I'm not her subject. and Yeah, she's, she's got true. a point. It's a good defence. I didn't do it any good, but yeah, no. <laughs> it didn't work. But, I don't think the yeah. law was really being practised there, was it? Yeah. yeah. Like, not to put a big deal on it, but Mary, Queen of Scots, is a bit of a clue under which sort of realm she falls, I would have thought. But obviously I'm not think. a Tudor, Tudor look judge. <laughs> yeah. This is Elizabeth I we're dealing yeah. with here, you know. Not at home to Madam Logic. That's why it always annoys me. So just one other thing on that that annoys me is this question mark about whether Elizabeth really did intend for her to die or not, which is sometimes presented as, as kind of letting her off the hook. You know, Elizabeth at the time said, oh, I signed the death warrant, but I didn't want it to get sent up to Fotheringhay. That was an accident. That was an administrative error or something. And God, she was the queen. I mean, if she wanted you dead, you were dead. She did not make yeah. administrative oh, errors. Who <laughs> hasn't signed and yeah. posted a death warrant or two? <laughs> it happens to us all, surely. I work in local government. That could just so easily happen. Maybe it can happen. Well, she certainly locked up the secretaries who 
had carried the death warrant who'd uh, signed the clerk of the council and uh, neither of them were happy about it. Now they didn't obviously they didn't face the punishments they were given. She railed against them, she tried to make them scapegoats, she fined them but quietly the fines were dropped and she mm. let, let them off the hook for a mistake they didn't actually make. So I've got to ask, given her background, you mentioned there that she like goes off to France from the age of five and is pretty pretty much raised that. It's like every portrayal that we see of her, Scottish accent, not just mm. Scottish accent, but absolute Gorbals tenement accent. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> like, do we, what do we know about how she actually spoke and her courtiers? Well, she, you would think, would have a French accent, given mm, the yeah, length of time that she spent in France, five to 18 formative years, and we know that French was her preferred language. She wrote in it, she thought in it. So you would think she would have a French accent. But, but, Ooh, like when she hair. first came to England and she was very, very early in her imprisonment, she was visited by a, an English courtier and politician, or rather he worked for the English government. He was Irish, Nicholas White, and he wrote an account for the English government of her meeting, so mm. his meeting with her. And he was very polite about her. Everyone seemed to be charmed by Mary Queen of Scots when they met her. Um, except Walsingham and Burley and Amias Paul, except the really Puritan guys. So Nicholas White, when he met her, said she speaks with a pretty Scotch accent, pretty Scotch speeches. That presents a bit of a puzzle, you would think. Why mm. shouldn't she be speaking with a French accent? Because the general consensus would be, even though she spoke French and Scots as languages, you would think French being the dominant one would affect her accent. Yeah. But he's telling us no. He's saying no to that. So one thing that I noticed in reading about Elizabeth was that she was once criticised by a French ambassador for her accent when she spoke French. Elizabeth spoke French as well, spoke several mm -hmm. languages. This French ambassador apparently said that her French accent when she spoke French wasn't very good and she was raging at this. But what does that tell us? It kind of tells us that there was an assumption in the period that if you spoke another language, you were expected to be good at the accent. So we might have a halfway house here where Mary Queen of Scots might have spoken Scots in some kind of Scottish accent and spoken French in a French accent. We know she was good at languages, so mm -hmm. maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's why Nicholas White was able to claim that she spoke with a Scotch, as he called it, accent. So for everybody out there that's saying, oh, Mary Queen of Scots should be, it should be a French accent, we actually have their primary evidence to say to say no. Yeah, yeah. Unless he was just an idiot. <laughs> didn't, know, <laughs> didn't know what a Scottish accent sounded like. <laughs> like to be fair, you know, he might not have travelled that far and wide. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that, that there is actually, because you, you do hear that cropping up all the time eh, out there in the wide world that, you know, people go, people expressing this air of knowledgeable saying, oh, well, you know, it had to be, she she had to be a French accent. She had to sound French. Interesting. I, mean, I, I almost not. find it like psychologically difficult to accept that she didn't speak with a French accent. It just seems like it should be right. She should have had a French accent based on all that time. But the one little bit of evidence about her accent goes against me. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and I suppose, like you say, when I was taught French, not that I'm any good at it, but you, you you were speaking in a French style with a French accent. I would probably still sound English to a Frenchman. Well, I was going to say, so was I when I was taught French in school. We would always say, you know, you have to do the accent, you have to do the accent. And I, I always pissed me off because I thought, well, I've never heard a French person in Scotland speaking either English or Scots or anything with anything but a French accent. So if they get to keep their accents, then... I don't see why I can't speak French with a Scottish accent. Um, whilst we're on the subject of languages, um, what do we know about how the English court spoke? Um, we mentioned the that uh, Elizabeth attempting to speak with a French accent when speaking French, but how would she have sounded just when speaking English? Are we talking like Shakespearean actors, the, thou, all that kind of thing, or how would it have been? So, yeah, well, in terms of um, vocabulary, yes, she she would have spoke these and those and all of that sort of stuff. But this is something that really just gets in my balls about um, films, about movies. Whenever we see Glenda Jackson as Elizabeth, Helen Mirren as Elizabeth, whoever, I mean, they're all great, fantastic performances, but they speak in very modern, upper-class, cut-glass received pronunciation or RP and we know that they didn't speak like that in the period because that didn't exist until late Victorians mm. again to blame Victorians again Victorians again uh, and Edwardians and even so the way the late Queen Elizabeth II spoke I mean no one speaks like that now really no yeah. one spoke like that 500 years ago what they would have spoken like and how they would have sounded, the accents they would have used, would have been regional predominantly. So regional lords would have spoken, I would imagine, in regional accents. Very well educated people would have spoken in educated accents. The problem is we don't really have any idea what an educated Trudor accent sounded like. I mean, easy to say, but we don't know. I, there's all kinds of weird myths about this. There's myths that there's a hidden island somewhere, I can't remember which island it is in America, that because of when it was uh, colonised, they've maintained a Tudor accent. It's not true. Yeah, like the, yeah somewhere yeah. in the Appalachian Mountains, they speak with a, the original, the the original the British accent. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, that, and it's, it's just so condescending. These people have not developed in any way. They've just, <laughs> the rest of the world has moved on and they haven't. But what annoys me about the English accents in these movies is whenever we see the Scottish court or a Scottish lord, and in fact, Paul, you said it, they speak like they're from Glasgow tenements. So if we were being fair when we were casting these movies, if we're going to have the English court and its lords and ladies, all of them speak in very modern, posh English accents. Shouldn't the Scottish court be speaking in very modern, posh Scottish accents? There are posh Scottish accents. Mm -hmm. High Edinburgh accents. I don't have one, so you you won't hear (laughs) it from me. (laughs) So while we're on the subject of portrayals of Scotland, we see an awful lot of these portrayals of Scotland as being backward, primitive, Kilt wearing, even the highest nobles of uh, croft farmers and 
mentioning no particular Bravehearts, but there you go. <laughs> and uh, we did do an excellent episode on Braveheart, series one, episode three. So do do dive in on that. But, you know, what, what was Scotland like? And after all, you know, what is it, 1571, is it? The first assassination in political assassination in the world by firearm is carried out in Linlithgow. They can't be that backward, can they? And that was Mary's half-brother, Murray, who took over yeah. the region. Once she had been booted out, when she'd fled as well, he took over his region. And that's another thing that... that you, you were right, Paul. There are a lot of things that piss me off after how, <laughs> after how way back I said I was. One of the other things that goes back in history books for quite a long time is the idea that wouldn't Murray, the man, her half-brother, have made a much better king? What a shame that he was illegitimate because she was a silly woman and he was this strong, clever, politically-minded genius. Well, he couldn't have been that smart because he walked down a street he'd been warned about and got himself shot. So it's not as if he'd not been told. Am I right in this as well? Am I right in thinking that they they knew there was a particular like the Hamiltons were out yes, to yeah, do something. Yeah, yeah. So his route takes him through the centre of Lidlithgow, past a family home of the Hamiltons <laughs> with lots of lovely darkened recesses. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? May as well just have drawn a target on his back. <laughs> yeah. But he was, yes, you're quite right, shot, assassinated by firearm. And it says something again then about, yes, Scotland politically was violent, very violent, actually, in the 16th century. But was it this backward, really primitive kind of place? No, it wasn't. That's why the Mary Queen of Scots movie, was it 2018? Mm. was really so, irritating yeah. visually because whenever you saw Elizabeth, Margot Robbie, who I thought was great as Elizabeth, whenever you saw her in her palaces at court, it was, you know, the Tudor panelling and all that. It was very nice, very bright, airy. When you saw Mary at her court, she lived in a cave. And there were like <laughs> rock walls, stalagmites and stalactites. What is this? What is this? It was bizarre. Such a bizarre choice. But what we tend to see, you know, again, a lot of films and things is that the Scottish court almost just didn't have a renaissance, whereas Scotland had a renaissance under James IV. So at the beginning of the 16th century, James the Fourth and Mary's father, James the Fifth, mm. really were builders. They were uh, extraordinarily interested in bringing over French fashions, European fashions, and building up royal palaces. It was one of the reasons why Mary didn't have to build very much. Her father and grandfather had built up Renaissance palaces for them. Yeah, so we've got this... You know, so you have they have this Renaissance era. I mean, I think I think one of the classic classic movies for really making this out was less so Braveheart and more Rob Roy with Liam Neeson. I've never seen Rob Roy. I've you seen never, Braveheart. Don't, I, don't, yeah. you, will, no. <laughs> you will. You you will not like it. But it all portrays the English as very finely dressed and almost yeah. foppish. And it again, it is it it is the Scots as these people who still wash in rivers and. You know, just yeah. People seem to not see Scotland as almost being like a functional hierarchy in the period, yeah. and England is 
quite happily represented as peasants and poor people at the bottom and these finely dressed lords and ladies at the top. All European countries were like that at the time, really, and Scotland was another European country. It would have been the same. Lots of yes, some people would have washed in rivers. Some people probably <laughs> still do in every country, uh, but it would have had the finely dressed, ornate interiors, all of this sort of stuff. One thing in the 16th century that Scotland was definitely behind England on was nobles building these big prodigy houses. So England mm. really was ahead of the game in that. Like um, Bess of Hardwick, Hardwick Hall. Yeah. Some kind of places. Scotland didn't have buildings like that. It's built up fancy, rich houses would have been equivalent to probably upper gentry in England for the reason that they had less money, I suppose, but also because there was still in the 16th century a lot of conflict. So one of the things you really wanted if you were a a rich person in Scotland was to make sure your house was defensible. Thick walls, um, really somewhere that you could pull an army into if you needed it. Also, it's cold. It's still cold. (laughs) So, you know, thick walls, small windows. Yeah. Yeah, um, a little bit earlier we've t- touched on this, but it seems an awful lot of Mary's history and her story is tied up with the men that were in her life. Um, so what do we know about her relationships and that side of her? And how does those relationships affect the Scottish court as well? How does it affect the politics of the time? An interesting question, uh, the men in her life. Again, one of the other phrases you always hear about Mary Queen of Scots, didn't she have terrible taste in men? Didn't she have awful taste in men? See, everywhere, everyone says it. Um, now, if you're looking at them personality-wise, yes, yes. If you're looking at them in the way that she would have as queen, as monarch, politically, Darnley was the perfect choice on paper. He had a claim to the Scottish throne. He had a claim to the English throne. Both of them were uh, descended from Scottish royalty. Both of them were descended from Henry the Se- sorry Henry the Seventh's daughter, Henry mm. VIII's sister. So, in marrying Darnley, she could marry a potential rival, and then what she could have done is sidelined him. Now, that's what she tried to do. She married him. She gave him no power. She tried to continue ruling despite having taken a husband. Obviously, it didn't work because. It was the 16th century and he was an arsehole, so <laughs> he, he was not going to be um, sidelined and denied power. But she, fair play to her, she tried it. I, I love how you said that didn't she have awful tasted men, like compared to Anne Boleyn? No. Uh, well, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and she managed to get rid of her husband. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned you, you mentioned Bothwell and the uh, assassination and the just blowing up the. Say what you like about Richard the Third. He didn't detonate the Tower of London to get rid of the prince. Exactly, that's he? another reason that I, Richard, <laughs> uh, I think, did it. I don't know if that's been a subject oh, yeah. before. I, I'm not an expert. Oh, yeah. I think he did it. He did oh, it. Oh yeah. But sorry, could we just cover this assassination thing? We've, we've mentioned it a few times before. What's with the blowing yeah, up of happened? things? What was the what, what is that story? That was Bothwell's doing. Why did he blow up the house? And it wasn't even the the 
explosion that killed Darnley. He was found in the garden with his his servant, who, as far as we know, done nothing wrong. Uh, they were both found in the garden, smothered to death. So they must have heard that there was something going on. You know, you might sometimes hear someone going about your house laying powder, getting ready to kill you, mm. and tried to escape and been caught in the garden and offed there. So the original plan seems to have been to blow up the house, which was Bothwell's plan from what everyone can tell, from what historians tend to think. But Bothwell wasn't the only one in on the plot. In fact, pretty much everyone who was anyone wanted rid of Darnley by this point. He was not a popular young man. But I I kind of feel sorry for him because he was really young. He was like 20, 21 years old. Uh, how bad can you be at that? I suppose you can be very bad at that age, but he, Judah. He, he's, he's sympathetic. Um, when it was blown up, what Mary probably should have done, what she definitely should have done, is thrown Bothwell to the wolves. So here's your murderer, hang him. That's precisely what she didn't do, obviously. She married him. Why did she marry him? Her claim was that he had ravished her against her will, in other words, that he had raped her. And there is some evidence of that, and I tend to think that's what happened. But she also didn't give him up when she could have done. And again, people have tried to say, well, that's because she became pregnant very quickly and she didn't want to risk the legitimacy of the children. So I'll concede it is very murky. What I think happened from looking at Mary's life in totality really is that she had one of her several bouts of now I'm going to call it manic depression or bipolar I don't know if because it's always dangerous to Mm. retroactively diagnose people either in terms of mental health or physical health but we do know from various episodes in her life there were reports that she would either be manically high and full of energy or she would take to her bed for days crying, occasionally threatening suicide, as she did at the time of Bothwell's, the Bothwell marriage. So I think what happened is when Darnley was killed, now don't get me wrong, I don't think she gave a shit that Darnley was dead. I was probably very happy no. about that. But when she realised that people were accusing her of the murder and saying she was involved, she very quickly fell into one of these downward spirals where she was in floods of tears, calling for a knife to kill herself. She was clearly in a bad place, shocked, horrified. And I think what happened is Bothwell moved in for the kill at that point. So it was taking advantage. And I would call that ravishing someone, whatever degree it was. He was quite happy. I mean, there was no sense of mental health in the 16th century. He wouldn't have cared that she was in a very, very dark place. He just saw the chance of grabbing power and that's what he did. Uh, And then, as you say, they end up having to flee anyway. Yeah, yeah. So he turns out to... I think he probably presented himself as a saviour. She was clearly extremely emotionally, mentally unstable at that time, Mm. as I say, in a, a very bad place. He would have presented himself as the man to fix this. He's going to fix it. And he didn't. No. So we see a lot of portrayals of Mary, Queen of Scots, that she's either this 
pawn of politic in men, as we described mm. there, or this seasoned Catholic plotter seeking mm. to depose Elizabeth I, or as this fiery Scottish patriot, or or as a victim. What's your take on her and the plots and the downfall? Oh, that's, a, that's a big question. I I know that there's a lot of people that will be either Team Mary or Team Elizabeth. I think they're both really interesting figures, and I love reading about them both. I love writing about them both. I think they're both fascinating. Was Mary a, a kind of Scottish patriot? No, I don't think she was. I don't think she mm. was upset. She I think she would have quite happily seen Scotland just sort of subsumed into England. Why do I think that? Because her son was very much of that mind when he became king of England in 1603 when Elizabeth died. He didn't want a a union in the sense that even the union in 1707 brought about. He wanted Scotland to be anglicised. His idea of England was everyone just does what the monarch says and they're all very sycophantic. That was his view of the English. He pretty much said it on the one visit he made back to Scotland. He never came back to Scotland except for one time in 1617 where he berated the Scots for um, dressing too finely, for smoking. He said, you're learning these bad habits from the English. You should learn from them how to obey your monarch. (laughs) So uh, what he wanted was for Scotland's church to really fall into line with the English church, which the Presbyterians were not happy about. He Mm. wanted English common law to be spread across the whole of Britain so that Scots law would essentially be abolished and English common law would be brought in. That never happened either. So as I say, even in the uh, 1707 union, it didn't go as far as James wanted. I suspect what James wanted was probably what Mary would have wanted as well. And again, yeah. I'm not judging for this. If you were a 16th century monarch, the idea, the overriding idea was, if I have a right to territory, to greater territory, I should be chasing up. I should be pursuing it. So it's completely understandable. I think that Mary would have really went hard after her English succession claims James did it as well after her. The only thing that I think they were both bloody idiots for, and when you read history, you just want to slap them, James more so than Mary, actually, is they let Elizabeth really sell the idea that she had to declare one of them her successor. So when it was Mary in Scotland, she really bought into the idea, oh, I need to get Elizabeth on site. She has the right to declare who her successor will be. When James was growing up when he was King of Scots. He did the same thing, constantly chasing Elizabeth, saying, you know, please, please, please um, make me your successor, declare me your successor. I'll be your slave. I'll do anything for you. I'll, I'll be your friend. And it turned out it was a complete waste of time. Neither of them actually, in the end, needed this. When Elizabeth died, she'd still not named a successor. Didn't matter. It was the English Privy Council, it was the politicians who decided, yeah, we'll just make James king. So Elizabeth really was playing a, a bluff. I don't yeah. know, poker, am I using the right terminology there? <laughs> she was bluffing <laughs> that she really held, held this powerful right to declare her successor. In the end, it didn't matter. In the end, it was, it was the politicians that decided it. 
I'm going to round off with one question that we hadn't given you in advance, so stand by. But she's she's always referred to as having, not that there's a pleasant execution, but a really quite horrific botched execution that that ends up with wigs falling off and so forth. Mm. I mean, just just what actually goes on? There's a... I think this is a myth. Well, I think that the botched execution is true. Sorry, that is absolutely true. But there is a myth that comes out of it, I think. Mm. And the myth is that the axe first went halfway through, whether the back of her head or the back of her neck. And this story emerges that she said, sweet Jesus. Now, I'm no physician or surgeon, but I'm guessing that if you've had massive head trauma, you're not saying anything. So I don't think she said, sweet Jesus. I don't think she let out any prayers or anything. I think if you have that sort of trauma, you would just go into massive shock. Second blow just about took her head off. And then the executioner found that it was still attached by some gristle, is how it's described. Mm, So he had to saw through that and then her head came off. And then he tried to lift the head up to say, here's the head of a traitor, but he only lifted her wig. She'd been wearing a wig. Because I say, she was only 44, but years of captivity had kind of ruined her health. Mm. Uh, yeah, and depression will do that to you if it's that extreme as well. Yeah, and that went on again during her captivity. There'd be times when she seemed perfectly happy. Other times she'd be laid up for days, weeks, crying. So how would you like to see Mary Queen of Scots portrayed in the future? Oh, I would like to see a a mini-series that doesn't just focus on the personal rule in Scotland. It's interesting. Loads of stuff happened, loads of interesting Mm. stuff. I would really like to see a mini-series about Mary that starts in, I suppose, childhood or her teenage years, married to Francis, and goes right through her captivity to the end of her life. Just to get rid of that idea that everything was jam-packed into those uh, few years in the 1560s in Scotland, when there was so much on either side of that that's really fascinating. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, Do you feel better? I do, yes. I feel like now I don't have to have those rants again. I will. Of course you will. What is history if not (laughs) not filled with rage? Without without you angry historians, we would be nothing. But thank you very much. That was was my Thank you both. Well, if you would like to know more about this subject, then you can start by buying Stephen's excellent range of books, and we're going to have links to those in the History Rage bookshop. You can also check out his blog on Tudor History at his website, www.stephenverappen.com. And, of course, you can follow him on Twitter at ScrutinEye, and we will have links to all of those in the show notes. But once again, Stephen, thank you. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We would really appreciate any reviews that you could leave with us on Apple, Podchaser, Amazon, or even just leave us a gold star on Pocket Casts. And you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then please support us on Patreon. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes three months in advance, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye.